This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Today, we continue our Education and Law miniseries with a show on the legal and policy issues surrounding special education. My guest is Janet Decker, an associate professor in the Educational Leadership and Policy Studies Department at Indiana University. Dr. Decker became interested in special education policy and law when she taught students with autism. In our conversation today, Dr. Decker talks about the legal term FAPE, which stands for Free and Appropriate Public Education. FAPE is legally guaranteed to children under the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. It is one of the most important legal issues in special education law in the United States, but also one of the most problematic. What is the definition of free and appropriate public education? We also discuss the issues of legal literacy of teachers, parents, and administrators. Both teachers and administrators are woefully underprepared and basically legally illiterate. Janet Decker's latest co-written book with Martha McCarthy and Susanna X is Legal Rights of School Leaders, Teachers, and Students, which was published by Pearson. Janet Decker, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. So special education lawsuits are what I've learned to be the most common type of litigation filed um, against schools. Can you give an example of one such lawsuit? Absolutely. So recently, in 2017, the U.S. Supreme Court offered a decision in the case Andrew versus Douglas County School District. And this case was about a young boy, Drew. He was a fifth grade boy with autism, and he wasn't making progress after several years in a public school. So because of this, his parents unilaterally decided to transfer him to a private school that was designed just for students with autism. And within months of being at this private school, Drew was making academic progress and his behavior had improved significantly. So because of this progress, his parents filed a lawsuit against the public school, claiming that the school had violated Drew's legal rights. So specifically, the parents argued that under the federal law, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, or IDEA, that the school was required to provide Drew with a free, appropriate public education. So that's known as a FAPE, and and you've probably caught on. There are a lot of acronyms in special education. So the parents uh, claim that he wasn't provided with the education that he was legally entitled, entitled to receive. And because of this, the parents said that uh, the public school district needed to pay for the private school tuition. Now, this scenario where parents are seeking private school tuition isn't unusual in special education lawsuits. And and oftentimes, the tuition for these uh, specialized private schools or residential schools can be quite high. So in this particular case, it's it's pretty interesting because the private school tuition was approximately $78,000 a year. And as we know, school budgets are are tight. And so for one school district to be paying uh, this type of tuition is quite extraordinary. So in that case, it first went, as special education lawsuits do, it first went to the administrative law judge and then the district court and then uh, to the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals. All of those lower courts found that the school district had provided Drew with a, a FAPE, a free appropriate public education. Um, In fact, the Tenth Circuit stated that Drew's education plan, and this is called an IEP or an individualized education plan, 
that that IEP only needed to confer um, educational benefits that's merely more than de minimis. So another way to phrase that is that the Tenth Circuit was saying that the IEP only needed to provide just above trivial educational benefit. But then when the case finally made its way to the U.S. Supreme Court, which is really exciting when an education law case gets that high, the Supreme Court unanimously disagreed with all those lower courts. And they said that applying that minimal standard, and here's a quote from the Supreme Court, they said, it would be tantamount to sitting idly, awaiting the time with, when students with disabilities were old enough to drop out. So the court didn't alter the prior precedent that determining uh, what was appropriate for students with disability needed to be a case-by-case decision, but the court did alter that legal standard. So now the standard is uh, to decide whether a student's education is appropriate, that schools must offer an IEP reasonably calculated to enable a child to make progress appropriate in light of the child's circumstances. So in that case, did did the Supreme Court overturn the rulings in the sense that the public school had to, or the state had to pay Andrew's tuition costs at this private school of $78,000 per year? Yeah. So what happened was that uh, the Supreme Court, you know, gave their decision about that the legal standard was incorrect. And then they did what's called remand the case down to the lower court. And so when the lower courts made their decision about the tuition reimbursement, in the end, and this is after you know years of litigation, but in the end, Drew's parents prevailed. They, uh, the school district, the public school district, had to pay that private school t- tuition as well as attorney's fees and litigation costs, and that was estimated to be over a million dollars. Wow, wow, and, and it seems like it's all over this idea of what is appropriate. Exactly, that is uh, the million dollar question in this case, and a, a vexing question for school administrators and educators. It's the whole reason I ended up going to law school was because of trying to figure out what appropriate meant to different people and, and how the law decides that when um, the law is supposed to be individualized for each different student's disability. It also seems, I mean, free in this this acronym of FAPE, Free Appropriate Public Education, free seems pretty self-explanatory, and it's ultimately what that lawsuit was over. Appropriate, of course, is the, the big question mark, but then also this idea of public. I mean, obviously, this student was going to a private special needs school for autism, so I'm not really sure how public squares with this. Is it publicly paid for? Is that the idea? Yes, publicly paid for. And as education policy evolves, this question of public versus private is getting increasingly blurry. But sometimes public school districts are in support of sending students to private schools um, and they pay for that private school uh, tuition because they cannot provide the appropriate education for that student. But many times it's not that this public school district necessarily uh, wants the student to go to that private school and instead uh, the disability this disagreement results in in litigation between parents and uh, school districts. So using this case as sort of a a jumping off point, you know, this this student, Andrew was his name, or Drew, who had autism. um, And you mentioned that there was this Individuals with Disabilities Education Act that was the sort of legal issue at hand in that particular lawsuit. In terms of just other disabilities that that children may have, what sort of legal protection do students with disabilities have? Like what other laws are 
people able to draw on, and what do those laws say? Sure. There are three major federal disability laws. And then there's you know state laws, and there might be district policies that affect students with disabilities. But the three major laws are the one I mentioned already, IDEA, and then also Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act, which is commonly referred to as Section 504, and the Americans with Disabilities Act, or the ADA. What's the difference between these three different laws? Well, the one that affects students with disabilities um, the most is the IDEA. We have seen more attention given to Section 504 in recent years, and I can explain more about that if you'd like. But the the big difference between these, it's really kind of grouped into two differences. So IDEA is an education law and provides um, entitlements and protections for students with disabilities who are, are in public schools, whereas Section 504 and the ADA are civil rights laws, and so they prohibit disability-based discrimination. And so they apply to uh, individuals you know, from birth to death. They are lifelong applicable to, to you know, a student or an adult. The other difference is between 504 and ADA, Section 504 applies only to public and private schools that receive federal funding, whereas the ADA applies to almost every public and private school. And then how they define disability is different as well. So with IDEA, how to decide if a student is eligible to receive special education and related services, there's two different steps that um, have to incur. First, uh, the student has to have a certain disability classification. So within the law, there's um, about 13 different disability classifications, um, such as autism, a learning disability, or emotional disturbance. And then the second part of it is that the student must be in need of special education related services. So there's an evaluation that happens to decide if students um, are in need of that type of, of special supports. And that's how the IDEA defines disability, whereas Section 504 and the ADA use a definition, and they use the same definition, and that's if an individual, an individual with a disability is one who has a physical or mental impairment that substantially limits one or more major life activity, has a record of impairment, or is regarded as having an impairment. I find that, I'm, I'm, I'm not a lawyer, but I find that very difficult to understand why there's two different ways of understanding disability in the, in the law. It is interesting. It's also interesting that the disability classifications aren't necessarily classifications that a physician has um, defined. So it's the, the school district that classifies the student as having certain disabilities. And so we get into the subjective nature of how to define disability. And then with some of these broad legal terms, there is confusion about what that means exactly. So there are um, quite a few lawsuits just about whether an individual is eligible and whether the individual can be defined as having a disability. Who at the school level or at the district level, the school district level, actually decides what is the disability classification of a child? So it all starts with a a referral for special education and related services. So this can come from a variety of people. It can be that the parents request this referral. It can be that the classroom teacher requests this, or perhaps um, there's others who who request this. And then it starts an an entire process um, where a team of individuals at the school district 
district decide uh, what happens next and then the law outlines that many different steps of the process before a student can be evaluated for having a disability in a school setting the parents must provide consent to for this and so some parents refuse to consent even for their their child to be um, determined to have a disability and the other part of that i want to use the word definition of disability but i'm not sure if that's how the idea talks about it but the other part of how they discuss disability is this in need of services what does that mean and and what sort of services would they even be talking about when it came to children with disabilities in school so when the evaluation occurs different individuals so at schools it might be a school psychologist but then also parents can get an independent evaluation to determine this but the child's current academic and functional levels of performance are measured and they're, they're seeing if there's some kind of need for services. So if there's some type of deficits, and this could be not only in academic skills, but it could also be in social, emotional skills. It could be you know in need of speech services. It could be a whole variety of services. The main types of services that students typically receive are things like transportation, psychological interventions, things like administering tests or interpreting information by psychologists, also health services. But the Supreme Court's been very clear that there's a bright line rule that schools do not need to provide medical services. And then another common type of uh, service is extended school years, or ESY, you'll hear people say. And that uh, means that in addition to the minimum requirements of, of school uh, that's determined by you know, state law, then perhaps a student with a disability is entitled to receive even more school services perhaps in the summer. So are a lot of, is a lot of litigation around special education lawsuits, is, are they mostly about these sort of disputes over related services? Many of them are. There's a variety. I mean, special education is the the most litigated area in uh, school law. And so there's a whole host of different issues that cause litigation to happen. So eligibility, whether a student's eligible, there's discipline issues, there's the big question about what's appropriate. But yeah, related services definitely come up. And, And as you can imagine, parents want what is uh, best for their child, um, whereas the law doesn't require school districts to provide the best intervention. So these related services, sometimes parents want more related services than the school district must provide, and there's arguments about that. And then related to related services is a big issue in special education law, and that's one of uh, methodology or intervention. So for certain children, so uh, in particular for children with dyslexia or students with autism, there's a variety of types of intervention that are considered the gold standards and they have you know, scientific support behind them. And of course, as, as you can imagine, parents want these interventions and they these type of interventions require the school staff to have specialized training. And oftentimes these type of interventions are very expensive. And would these, I mean, because they're so expensive, I would imagine school districts that receive so much money from local communities, local taxes, that the differences in what is even available in terms of services would be different by school district based on sort of socioeconomic status of that particular area. So do we see big differences across locations in America, across states, across neighborhoods? Like, I mean, these these services 
must not be equal, I would imagine. Oh, Will, I'm so glad you asked me that because, I mean, that's the crux of why I went into the, the field of education policy is because of these inequities. So I um, taught students with autism and I was teaching at one of these private schools specialized for students with autism, providing this specialized intervention. So it's called Applied Behavior Analysis or ABA. And there's a lot of litigation surrounding this um, type of intervention. And what I witnessed as a teacher was that in this community, it was in, in Princeton, New Jersey, and on the East Coast that many families were getting this type of intervention provided by the public school districts. Whereas when I went back to my home state in Indiana, it was a, a complete difference in what type of intervention parents of students with disabilities would receive. The other difference, not only the geographical inequities, but also just based on you know what uh, family a child's born into, whether a child's born into a family with wealth who can uh, afford attorneys versus a family who's not, or a family who has the social capital who understands how to navigate the system. Really in the, these times when there's limited funding for these type of services, even though school districts are legally mandated to provide certain type of services, you see great inequities between people who can fight the system or who don't even understand what their legal rights are. Is some of the funding that's provided for special education, like what's the breakdown in terms of local community, you know, local taxes versus state taxes versus federal taxes or federal government contributions? Yeah, so funding is extremely complicated (laughs) and varies across the states. You know, so each state has a different funding formula. And when it comes to special education, we have these federal legal requirements, but the federal government doesn't provide the majority of funding for local school districts to provide this type of intervention. So the big elephant in the room when you're talking about special education lawsuits is that the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act is an incredibly underfunded mandate. So this law has been around um, for my entire life, so for 44 years, and back uh, when Congress enacted this law, it promised to cover 40% of the extra costs of special education. So in other words, the federal government was supposed to to pay about half of the additional cost required to educate students with disabilities. But Congress has never even come close to fulfilling that promise. And the number of students with disabilities served under IDEA has increased by 25% in the past two decades. It's continually increasing and certain disability categories such as autism are increasing. But the state grant program funded uh, through the federal government has only uh, funded a small percentage of that. So somewhere around 14% of that additional cost. Why aren't they meeting their obligation? Well, I mean, I think it reflects societal values. I think, you know, there's many attempts for increases in funding for education in general, and then specifically for students with disabilities, but students with disabilities aren't the majority of the students. They're a minority in the public school districts. And so, you know, there's been different bills. There's currently a bill in Congress called the IDEA Full Funding Act. It was introduced in March and 
Um, oftentimes it's introduced during Disability Awareness Month, but it's uh, died in, in sessions. So there's, there's a number of issues uh, to pr- protect students with disabilities, but also to support schools in meeting their legal obligations. But as a society, we haven't, we haven't prioritized that over other issues that get funding in the federal government. So I want to go back to this 2017 case that you mentioned in the beginning of our conversation and ask a little bit about the Supreme Court. It seems like the Supreme Court, you know, overturned what lower courts were saying, and and that's not unusual necessarily, but as you said, it seemed a bit surprising in this particular case. So I guess the question I have is, with this relatively new makeup of the court in the last few years, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh being nominated and confirmed to the court lately, do you think this is going to impact the court's stance on special education law in the future? That's an interesting question. One thing I should mention about the Andrew case is that in some ways that it was an outlier. One, that the Supreme Court even decided to to take up an education law case. We don't see a lot of cases go all the way to the Supreme Court. And then two, that it was ultimately uh, decided in the parents' favor. That's extremely unlikely when cases go to litigation. Some researchers have suggested that about 90% of the time that the school districts prevail in special education lawsuits. And since the Andrew decision, there's been research to document that school districts are continuing to prevail. So one thing that is important to talk about when it comes to Andrew is that, you know, it's it's not that school districts are, are being sued all the time and that parents are prevailing all the time. But what Andrew did is it, um, and what's evolved with special education law is that the attention has gone necessarily from just access into public school districts where you know, students with disabilities were segregated and, and not provided a public education. The attention has shifted on the quality of education, and I like that, um, whether it's symbolic or not, the Andrew case caused uh, school districts to really attend to progress and goal setting and their legal requirements. But when it comes to uh, the current makeup of the case, I don't know what will happen with the the two most recent Supreme Court justices. Uh, One of them, Gorsuch, was the judge in the Tenth Circuit on the Andrew case, and he, you know, like the lower courts before him, decided that that minimal standard for what is appropriate, what is what students are entitled to, he had decided that that was okay. Um, so his decision was the decision that was overruled by the court, the previous Supreme Court. And it was a unanimous um, eight to zero decision at that time based on the Supreme Court's makeup. Interesting. I mean, so it sounds like the school districts prevail most of the time, but are there any cases that you have identified that you think could make their way up to the Supreme Court? Like, are there any big cases on the horizon, in other words? I am not sure of that. There are legal trends that are shifting. So, for instance, well, I mentioned those two laws, Section 504 and the ADA, Um, We're seeing an increase in Section 504 uh, litigation, and part of the reason is that parents can bring Section 504 lawsuits more readily, perhaps, than their IDEA lawsuits, so they don't have to exhaust their administrative remedies all the time, which means they don't have to spend as much time in the administrative courts before filing lawsuit in, in federal or state court. And so we're seeing uh, more issues 
and the other thing is uh, with Section 504 lawsuits, they can win damages, monetary damages, uh, whereas with the IDEA, it's not necessarily the same. And so with the Section 504 cases that we're seeing, we're seeing issues involving disability discrimination. So students with disabilities being harassed or bullied. We're seeing litigation with service animals and, and where to draw the line when service animals are permitted or not permitted in public schools. We're seeing more students under uh, and parents of students um, realize and identify that their child's issue could qualify or be defined as a disability under those broad terms of Section 504. For so, for instance, students who might need mental health services and the parents want those provided for by the public school district, or students who have allergies and need to have accommodations for that, or students with other medical needs. So those are some of the the hot topics that we might see go up to the Supreme Court, but there's not like one specific case that I'm watching that I think is going to make its way up. It's interesting to, to see how litigation is, you're seeing more litigation under the, this 504 statute. You know, as I said, I'm not a lawyer and, and special education law is, is fairly new to me. And it makes me realize how complicated it is and how complex it can be. And, you know, if I were a teacher in a public school trying to understand how these laws would actually impact my everyday life might actually be quite challenging. So what what do we know about sort of legal literacy among, you know, inside schools? Yeah, you're you're absolutely right, you know, and and like I've mentioned already, the reason I went to law school and then continued on was because I was one of those teachers who was trying to understand my legal requirements, was trying to understand special education law, and found it to be incredibly complicated. And so I feel strongly that teachers who are on the front lines, teachers who, um, if they make a mistake, the mistake can't be rectified. Teachers need to have uh, legal training and feel legally literate so that they can spot legal issues and that they can make decisions on the spot that um, protects students with disabilities. But what we know about legal literacy, first of all, there's not a lot of research in the area. There's only a few national studies about legal literacy. And what we do know from those studies is that both teachers and administrators are woefully underprepared and basically legally illiterate and that teachers and administrators wish they knew more about the law and are seeking more training in the law. And so is there training available, say, in Masters of Education programs, which many teachers go to? There is. And so at the university I uh, currently teach at, Indiana University, uh, we have a, a number of education law courses. We're an outlier, but many programs might have one education law class, uh, entry, you know, introductory level education law class. It's typically required for principal certification or in superintendent coursework, but it's not required for teachers. And if teachers are getting a master's in something that's not in an administration, then it's very unlikely that it would be anything but an elective for them. And what about parents? I mean, this must, you know, is this something like self-taught? You know, if you have a child that needs special education, then you sort of self-teach yourself what the law says? Like, is there any training available for legal literacy for parents? There is. There is. And what teachers find 
is that many times the parents know a lot more about disability and a lot more about the law than they do. So I always tell my undergraduate students, my pre-service teachers, I, I ask them if they're going to be special education teachers or general education teachers, and many times the majority raise their hand that they're going to be general education teachers. But the truth of the matter is that every teacher in public school districts are uh, special education teachers. They all are teaching students with disabilities and they all have a legal responsibility to follow the law. And so what oftentimes teachers will find is that a parent will come to them and can run circles around them understanding the, the law um, that as it relates to, to their child. And so parents have a variety of resources across the country, whether it's parent groups or advocacy groups, so that they receive training about this. And, and oftentimes, for good reason, parents are um, motivated to uh, really understand the, the law and their entitlements so that they can try to get the best education for their child. Well, it's, it's a very fascinating field of study, and it's rather complex in my mind and uh, you know I'm, I mean I'm going to be watching it closely now and and seeing and trying to follow any of these cases that that may come up. Janet Decker thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed it really was a pleasure of talking and learning from you today. Well thank you Will I feel very passionate about this subject and I'm, I'm very appreciative to have the opportunity to tell others about it. Janet Decker is an associate professor at Indiana University. Her newest co-written book is Legal Rights of School Leaders, Teachers, and Students. Today's episode was put together in collaboration with the Education Law Association. A transcript of today's interview can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please consider rating us on iTunes. It really does help. Fresh Ed's producers are Sherry Yang, Hong Zong, and Lushik Waba. Fatih Akhtas is our researcher, and original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.